want to thank you for uh, being here this morning and uh, being at Outward Church um, and uh, just being a part of what's going on here. Um, just real quick, man, I, I mean, I know this is the, you know, two weeks after Thanksgiving here. I just want to continue to commend you uh, for your uh, efforts in uh, THX. Um, I just, I want to commend you, those of you that served on, on the, the day of, that was for Thanksgiving Day, and, and all of those who served and, and made that happen. Um, we, uh, we spent about 17000 I think we raised close to that amount um, and so we're still doing some processing with finances and things like that. Um, we have other churches that are contacting us. A friend of mine said, hey, tell me how I can do this in my city. I saw what you guys are doing. That's so awesome. Um, and uh, we just, we have some opportunities uh, over the next, you know, uh, over this next year to maybe see what else God is going to do uh, through THX, through that event. And um, we have seen it just really help us get into the community. So thanks for being a part of that. And um, I'll just, I'll say this, I said this this uh, last week um, as well, and I, I, we're going to continue to talk about it more, um, not because we're money hungry in any way, but we want to see the vision that God has put a, ahead of us uh, to, uh, accomplished, and in part, with the way that that happens is through your gifts, through your uh, tithing and things like that. So if you're somebody that comes to Outward and you don't really like engage in the giving part, we, we just want to say we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're a part of this. If you're not really sure where you stand with God and where things are at, I mean, this is our gift to you, and, and hopefully there's other gifts to you that we bring. But if you're, if you're a believer, you've been, you've been a believer for a while, we want to encourage you to begin giving on a regular basis and to tithe. And that means to uh, work towards the Old Testament uh, kind of standard. It's not commanded, uh, but we see in the New Testament that really everything that we own, um, everything that we have is actually God's. And so uh, we use that Old Testament standard of a tithe, which means a tenth of, of, of what we make. I want to encourage you to walk in faith and to begin giving on a regular basis, give sacrificially, and watch how your faith in God grows and how you begin to say, okay, God, <laughs> I've given this at the beginning of the month. That's a biblical principle to give the first fruits of what, of what we've been given. I've given this, and I don't know how necessarily how I'm going to make it through the month the way that I normally did, but I'm just looking for you to provide and just just see how God provides. I, I think it, it's going to be um, an incredible thing for you, but that would be something that would incredibly benefit uh, the church here as we continue on through December and the first part of the year. We're a young church. Typically, churches do really well uh, financially in December because they have older members who are giving year-end gifts and things like that, And so, uh, but we don't have that problem here at Outward Church. And so, uh, in any case, uh, we just encourage you to give and to give faithfully um, through this holiday season. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 7, and anybody who knows, uh, if you know your Bible, you know that this is going to get deep real quick. Um, this is, <laughs> you should be saying, uh-oh, right now, because uh, I'll just, I'll be honest with you, um, it's, it's weird. It's weird. If, you, if you're not familiar with this passage, you're going to see what I'm talking about. Um, it's this prophetic weirdness um, that from, from here on out, and so uh, it's, it's just going to get a little bit, a little bit uh, uh, in the weeds, and so I just want to encourage you as, uh, as, we, uh, as we go here to understand that this is the Word of God. That this is the word of God. He wants us to hear it. He wants us to know it. He wants us to understand it. 
And so I encourage you to listen well and allow it to be clear to you. And so this is what we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Um, I, uh, I had thought about perhaps even skipping it and just doing one sermon on apocalyptic literature. Um, I uh, was convinced by a friend of mine that he, he believes that we should teach right through it because he believes that it's helpful, and I, I seem to agree with him, and so that, that's what we're, uh, we're going to do. But apocalyptic literature is really talking about the end of the world. It's talking about the end of the world as we know it. Um, I feel fine about it, but uh, I don't know how you feel fine, uh, whether you feel that way about it too, but um, apocalyptic literature is really about, the, about end times, and there's been so many people who have gotten themselves into trouble by trying to really determine exactly what these, these passages are saying and what they mean. Like, what does this mean and what does that mean and, 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 and so forth. And they've gotten themselves into real trouble with this. In fact, there's a guy who actually uh, wrote a book called uh, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And... Um, and then when 1988, the date, I forget the, the date that he uh, specifically chose in 1988, but when the, the judgment day, which would have been prior to the, uh, the end of the world um, in 1988, d- did not happen, um, he, uh, he pushed out his, his predictions and pushed, pushed out his predictions and then uh, uh, wrote another book about how the rapture was going to happen in 1989 and, uh, and then went further and further and finally all the way till. Uh, 1994, and then he stopped doing that. But we've had other people like uh, Harold Camping, and um, and then we have books and movies that are such a stalwart representation of Christianity, such as the Left Behind series. And um, you know, thanks to Nicolas Cage for really bringing that to us and um, things like that. So, um, just in case you're wondering, that's not a great place to get your. Uh, your Bible teaching from uh, a lot of the time. And so we, we have to be careful with this because in large part, it, there are just so many pitfalls that we could uh, fall into. And what, what I think I need to communicate to us this morning is not that, that we uh, can know the future in specifics, but that we can understand the, the things that God wants us to understand. It's, it's written for a comfort. And so these passages were written for a Jewish people, for these people uh, from Israel that are sitting in captivity, and they're, and they're, uh, and they're wondering, okay, when is, the, uh, when is all of my suffering going to come to an end? When is God really going to bring uh, you know, this thing to fruition? What's going to take place? And so these are written as a comfort, even though in, in, in some ways they're not really comforting entirely. It's not really comforting entirely because it tells us some difficult things about what's going to take place. And so the the question is, is whether we're going to try to make these things say something that they do not say or whether we're just going to receive what God has for us and just take it as the word of God. I spent most or all day on Friday in a theology class um, discussing things with a, a, a group of men and women about, about theology, about, about God's intentions. 
and uh, whether God controls every detail of life, because if he controls every detail of life, then somehow that impugns God, because then God is somehow responsible for evil, and so people, were, the, people are torn up about these things, and, and they have such difficulty accepting them, and, and so forth. But what I want to present to you this morning is just to read the Word of God and try not to read into it. Uh, we always bring our understandings of our culture and, and our backgrounds. And we're, we're always looking at the scriptures through a lens. But what I want to encourage you to do is to read the word of God, all parts of the word of God, and just believe them the way that they are. Uh, certainly do that in Christian community. Do that with wisdom. But I want you to receive it and just go, man, that's what the word of God says, and I just have to receive it. And, and so many times we try to take human attributes and say, you know, I, I don't like the way that God does this because um, that would make him unjust. But here's the thing. God isn't human. God is the definition of what is just. God uh, ha- decides what he's going to do. And whatever he does is just and righteous. And to believe anything else about that is to not trust God, is to not trust in who he is. And so this, this passage is, it is challenging, it's difficult, it's challenging to understand, but most of all, what it is, it is picture language. It is language that is depicting for us a picture, and that picture is the big picture. And so what it's going to show us is this, it's going to show us a picture and, it, and there, there's different aspects of it. And just like we would look at any piece of art or any aspect of, of, you know, just different types of art where you just go, I don't even know what that means. Like, why is that person's head square? Or, you know, what is, it, what is this actually saying? In some ways, we're looking at a piece of art and we're looking at something and just going, I don't know exactly what all that means, but God somehow wants us to take some type of comfort uh, from these words. Uh, Brian Chappell says this. He says, The text is complicated, but the message is, is simple. Despite present difficulties, we are part of God's big picture, so we must not lose hope, but instead rededicate ourselves to his purposes. So let's get into the, into the passage here. And it says this in chapter 7. Um, we've, we've come out of the life and times of, uh, of uh, Daniel and his friends and all of the happenings that take place there. We've come out of that, and now we're into uh, this apocalyptic literature. And you will see what I'm talking about in short order. So here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, uh, king of Babylon. Now, if you remember correctly, um, Belshazzar was uh, put to death. He's the one that had the golden goblets and, and was, was drinking and having a party and... and and whatnot, and in a, in a sense, you know, uh, rebelling against God in that. And so God allows him to be put to death, and then the Medo-Persian Empire comes in. So it says this, so we're kind of going back a little bit, and it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So Daniel is now having dreams. 
We've seen Nebuchadnezzar have dreams. We've seen other things happen. It just seems, it's very repetitious in Daniel. But here again, we have a dream. Daniel has a dream, and now he's going to communicate it. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So we have the four winds of heaven. This is from God. The four winds of heaven are stirring up the sea. The, st- the sea is a picture of chaos, uh, tumultuousness. It is, uh, in some senses, this deep, dark evil when it talks about this in apocalyptic literature. So the four winds of heaven are the ones that are stirring up the sea. And so this is creating this chaos, and out of that chaos comes four great beasts. Now remember, it's picture language, so these great beasts represent something. And so uh, the first thing that, that represents, verse 4, let's take a look at it. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Stop right there for a second. Babylon is often depicted in sculptures as a lion with wings. And in fact, in the scriptures themselves, it uh, refers to uh, Babylon in this way, or Nebuchadnezzar, as a lion or um, as an eagle with wings. And so this is, we believe, depicting Babylon. It's also going to echo chapter 2. Now, if you weren't with us, forgive me for just a second, but chapter 2 talks about how Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He's deeply disturbed about it. He comes to all of his astrologers and all of his spiritual guys, and he says, if you, uh, I am going to kill you if you do not tell me what dream I had, first of all, and secondly, what does it mean? If you remember correctly, if you remember the story at all, what happened was Daniel said, I'm going to tell you what the dream is. He goes back and prays. God tells him the dream. He comes back and tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is, and the dream is representative of four kingdoms, and ultimately leads him to tell Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will not last forever, but God's kingdom is going to come in, smash all of those kingdoms to bits, they're going to blow away like chaff in the wind, and the kingdom of God is going to grow like this massive mountain, God is the one who has put these kingdoms in place, he's going to remove them, and he's going to implant his kingdom, and so Nebuchadnezzar, know this, you are not forever, that's what the the moral of that story was. This also is uh, referring to these same four kingdoms. Let me tell you one other thing, and this is somewhat interesting, and that is in chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2, the original language goes from Hebrew to Aramaic. Nobody knows why. It just goes from Hebrew to Aramaic. Now, as you remember, I told you that chapter 2 talks about this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about four kingdoms, right? Aramaic, it is written in Aramaic till the end of chapter 7, which again is talking about these four kingdoms, these four great beasts. It stops uh, the Aramaic at the end of chapter 7, begins again in Hebrew. So that is an interesting fact, and I think it also points to the bookends that God really wants us to see Uh, this issue of these four kingdoms. So verse 4 says this, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. Now what, what is that saying? Well, there's some similarities, as I said, with Babylon and with Nebuchadnezzar. The similarities 
are essentially this, uh, that, uh, as I said, the lion with wings, that's what it is, uh, Babylon is pictured as. And in fact, you can see this in, in modern-day Iraq, where Babylon was at one point. You can still see sculptures uh, like this. But it's also uh, saying this, then as they looked, the wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet. We believe that this is possibly, possibly not exactly, we don't know for sure, but possibly referring to what God did to Nebuchadnezzar, which was Nebuchadnezzar one day comes out to the top of his uh, kingdom, to the top of the roof, and he's walking around. And he says, look at my incredible kingdom that I have made for my glory. And God says, that's it. And he turns him essentially into an animal. He crawls around on the ground until he finally says, uncle, and says, okay, God, you are the real God. And, and on and on it goes. God lifts him up from the ground, and he gives him his kingdom back. So th this seems to be talking about the kingdom of Babylon. Secondly, let's look at verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. So think about this uh, real quick. Uh, the, the, the four winds of heaven stir up the sea. The four great beasts come out. One of those is Babylon. God had been telling Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. He said, I'm the one that puts you in place. I'll be the one that takes you out. And then it says, okay, now Belshazzar uh, is, is killed, and the Medo-Persian Empire begins. So this is an empire that has basically two kind of sub-empires in it, the Medes and the Persians. And so it's talking about this bear, and it's raised up on one side, and most commentators believe that it's talking about the fact that this bear is kind of uneven. One side is stronger than the other, and that was true also in this empire. The Persians were more dominant than the Medes. And so it was told, arise and devour much flesh. Who is it told that by? It's told that by the four winds of heaven who bring it up out of the sea and it's created. God is the one who created this thing. The thing that should weigh heavy on us is that God has allowed this kingdom to arise and devour much flesh. The third empire that we're talking about here is in verse 6. After the, this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. We believe this is talking about the Greek empire. It's talking about Alexander the Great and the speed at which he overtook the world and became a world empire. He's a leopard. He has four wings. And in fact, you could get into some more details about how that kingdom was divided up um, after his death, and it was divided into four parts, and maybe that, those are the four wings. But again, that's speculation. But what happens here is that dominion, uh, a, 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 a area of rule was given to the Greeks. The Greeks were given power. And so they're given this power, and they are allowed to go ahead and do whatever they're going to do. They're going to uh, rule. And then we go to verse 7. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. If you remember from the statue from chapter 2, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream from chapter 2, uh, the legs uh, represented... Uh, Rome, we said at that point, and again, the, and the legs were made of iron. 
this beast seems to be the same, uh, the same as the legs from the statue and because it has great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Um, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. That's going to become more important here in a minute, this little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. I think some translations say like arrogant things, prideful things. So this little horn on this beast. Now remember, it's picture language. It's weird. It's kind of strange. It's this beast. It doesn't give a, a type of beast to it, but it's this beast, and uh, it has these ten horns, and, and then it has this little horn, and, and, and it's kind of crazy, and the little horn has eyes, and it's speaking kind of arrogantly, and so forth. And so what are we seeing here? We're seeing this tumultuous and chaos that's, that's, that's going on. It's, it's, it's creating havoc. It's, it's devouring much flesh. Dominion is given to it. It's stamping out every other kingdom. People are being killed. Horrific things are happening. There's crucifixions throughout the Roman Empire, and it's horrific. There's incredible horror. You think about our, our world today, and you can read some statistics, and you can read about uh, you know, how many people are being persecuted today, and who, are being, who, who is being killed here and there and all over the world. You look at Syria and, and, and that regime and how it's killing people, and you look at Russia and how it's, overtaking, uh, how it's overtaking Crimea and how they're taking more land. And you look at uh, North Korea and how they're threatening with nuclear war. And I suppose we're threatening them back. <laughs> um, you look at all of the things that are happening throughout the world. You, you go a step in and you look at all of the things that are taking place in, uh, in America. And all of the chaos and the kingdoms uh, that, are, that are here that are being brought down. And the, the, the people that are, um, that are being killed that are being discriminated against. You look at how our world is being torn apart limb from limb, and you look at how crazy that is. God wants you to read this and just and, and look at our world kind of in light of these beasts, the beasts of our own world. Understand that they're beastly. They're not created according to their kind. When God created animals, he created them according to their kind. They're not mixed. They don't, they're not a leopard and with wings. They're not a lion with wings. They're not this crazy-looking bear. They're not this crazy beast. God creates animals, and he creates them according to their kind. This evil is in the world, and it's not according to its kind. It's mixed. And we look at it and we say, this should not be this way. It should not be this way. God, where are you? How come you're not at, in the midst of this? What is going on? What's happening? And so we lose hope. And what do we do? We hope in a presidential candidate. 
I saw one of my friends who tends to be uh, more liberal in her leaning. She's a believer, and she was, she was railing last night against this new tax plan that was just, uh, that was just uh, uh, voted in. And I, I don't care whether you l- like it or not necessarily, but there's, there's deep hope that we have in what's happening in Washington. There's deep hope, and it affects us. It affects our, our taxes. It, it affects the way that, that we live. Our hope is deeply embedded in that. And some people were deeply comforted by uh, President Trump being voted in. And some people were deeply comforted uh, by President Barack Obama being voted in when he was, uh, for many different reasons. One of them being that he was an African-American. What a great accomplishment that a, that a country that was so racist uh, voted a black American into office. But we, we take this deep hope and, and, and this and, and this. this this incredible faith that we have in our legal system, in our justice system, in all the things that are taking place. And then when it's dashed, when it falls apart, when things don't work, we just, we get worked up and, and life is just, man, this chaos. And it's, God, where are you? And what's happening? And then you look at your personal life and you look at the things that are taking place and you say, man, God, where are you in the midst of this? The beasts are tearing apart my life. It may be an ailment or it may be somebody who's coming after you in, in your job or in your, your work or things aren't going the way that you pictured them going and you just go, man, this is, this is tearing me apart. It's, it's chaos. It's not working. God, where are you? And so we write silly theologies and things and say, you know what? God isn't in control. He's not in charge. He kind of has an idea that's this absurd notion of what's called open theism. Don't ever listen to that stuff. But it's this absurd notion that somehow God is not in control. And then, and then we try to listen to people like this guy who wrote 88 Reasons Why the End of the World Was Going to Come in 1988. And we, we listen to these people sometimes. And we allow people to speak things into our lives that it's just absolute foolishness. We try to make, make sense of all of it. But that's not where the sense should come from, and that's not where the peace should come from, and that's not where anything should, should come from in our lives because God wants us to see something. Somehow God has ordained through the four winds of heaven that these four beasts would come out of the sea and that they would terrorize and he would use them for his purposes. How does God do that? I don't know. Ask him when you see him. I don't know. How does he do it and stay and remain holy? I don't know. But what he wants us to know is in verse 9. As I looked, hang on, hang on, one, one second. Chaos, craziness, all of these things, all of this stuff is happening. And then verse 9, as I looked. It turns into poetry or prose. If you, if you, if you look at it in your, uh, in, in your Bible, it turns into, into poetry at this point. And it's this poetic statement which says, thrones were placed. That's one line. Okay, there's a throne or thrones. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who's the ancient of days? We're talking about God the Father. What's happening? These animals, these beasts, they're tearing people apart. They're going after everyone. It's chaos. Everything's going on. A throne is placed. The ancient of days takes his seat. 
God is on his throne. God is on his throne, and who is he? He's the ancient of days. He's not just old, and so he has some wisdom. It's not just that he, you know, he, he knows a thing or two. No, he's the ancient of days. He has years and years, millennia. He has eternity for his wisdom to look back upon. He sits over and above eternity. How dare us come and say, you know what? God's unjust if he were to stir the waters and to bring the beasts of life out. God is unjust to allow this to happen in my life. God is unjust. He's the ancient of days, and he sits on the throne, and you do not. He's the one who sits there. But this also means that North Korea and Iran and Iraq and wherever Syria and Saudi Arabia and all of these other Middle Eastern countries that are in tumult... And everything that's taking place, the, the, the threats of war and all this stuff, the throne is placed and the Ancient of Days has seated himself. He is in charge. Do you see the picture language that's being stated here? It's speaking to our feelings about God. It's speaking to what we know of God. And it's saying, this is how I want you to sense God. Daniel's writing to these Jews who are dealing with persecution and they're living in exile. They've been kidnapped and he's telling them God is on the throne even though you rest under this brutal regime. God is on the throne. His clothing was white as snow. What's, it, what's that saying? It's saying holiness. It's saying it's pure white. It's saying he's absolutely holy. He's completely holy. He's completely righteous. He's white as snow. All of his judgments are right judgments. How do you feel about God? Do you like his judgments or don't you? Do you like the hand that you've been dealt? Or do you continually go back to God and say, why, why, why? Do you trust him in his holiness? Believing that his holiness is greater than yours. His righteousness is greater than yours. His wisdom is greater than yours. And the hair on his head was like pure wool. He doesn't just have a couple of gray hairs. This guy is like pure wool. I mean, just incredible wisdom. I'm starting to get that just a little bit right here. Just right on the sideburns. And it's a little weird. Those hairs stick straight out. And uh, so it's, I'm always doing this, like, stop it. The Ancient of Days, the hair of his head is like pure wool. His throne has fiery flames. The, the flames are the flames of judgment, we believe. They're the flames of judgment. He's, it's, it's, it's coming out from him. It is, it's what it, he is seated in. He is able to bring judgment. Its wheels were burning fire, a throne that has wheels. Who knew, right? What's it saying? It's picture language. Remember that? And the picture language says this. God is mobile. He goes where he wants. He can go anywhere. He is, at any time, 
anywhere he wants to be. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. What's that saying? A throng of people. It's massive are around him and before him. A thousands, thousands served him. And who is this Who is this ancient of days? He sits on this throne. He's sitting in judgment. He's able to judge. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are before him and serve him. And then 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. There are all these people, all these beings that surround him. He is on the throne He is king, he rules, he reigns, he will judge. It won't matter what these other kingdoms have done. It doesn't matter what I sit under. It doesn't matter what threats I endure. The Ancient of Days is on his throne. The court sat in judgment. Look how brief that is. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Do you see what, do you feel, do you sense what God wants you to sense? Is life chaotic for you? He is seated in judgment. The books are opened. The law books. This, this is what will be. This is who I am. This is what it's going to be like. Do you feel that about God? You can say whatever you want about how you feel outside of the word of God speaking to you. But this is how God wants you to feel. This is how God wanted these Jews to feel. This is what he wants us to sense is the awful nature of God sitting in judgment at his throne. Look at verse 11 with me. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their domain was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. We don't know how long that is. It's just for a little while. I mean, it, it's, it, there's some estimates, but we don't necessarily know. Look at, it, at what it says in verse 12. Their dominion was taken away. Uh, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned. What's this saying? The most awful thing that you could possibly think of, this last beast, this fourth beast, which we believe represents Rome, And these ten kings that would follow, which we do not know who they are, it could be Rome, it could be other things. People have had fantastic and and moronic estimates of what that means. We should not look into that. But what it says is this, is that this horrific beast is killed and destroyed. And then it says this, we're back into poetry again. Verse 3. 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
This is good news. I'll tell you why in a minute. I saw in the night visions, and behold, uh, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Woo! Yeah! Yeah! That's, listen, listen. As a believer, your hope isn't in your best life now. It cannot be. It is always, always, always your best life later. Our deep and abiding hope is, is in this. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. Jesus refers to himself 81 times in the gospel, 41 times in Matthew alone. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying that guy in Daniel that comes to the ancient of days and dominion and power and glory and all these things are giving to him is me. I am that guy. I'm that dude. I am the God man. I'm not just the son of God, but I am God in the flesh. I am the son of man. What does this also mean? It also means this, that he's the son of man. So he's like man, but he is not exactly like Adam, who's the first man. See, Adam screws everything up. Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin, they go against God. But here we have the son of man. He's a like man, but he is also the son of God. And so he comes, and what does he do? He lives life perfectly. And Jesus points back to this. It says this in Matthew 26, verse uh, 64. He says, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is saying this, and this is what he was crucified for. He's saying, hey, you remember that passage in Daniel? That is me. That's, that's me. That's, that's who I am. And they tear their clothes and they say, this is blasphemy that you would call yourself this. And Jesus says, that's who I am. That's what I am. It says, again, in verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, what happened when you look at the Gospels is, is you see that uh, the, the Gospels, which tell the life of Jesus, you see that it, 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 seems, uh, it seems strange because Jesus comes in and even his disciples are like, hey, are you now going to bring in the kingdom? And they're thinking this military victory. They're thinking about Daniel and they're thinking about all of these other kingdoms that are going to be stamped out. And here is the Son of Man. He comes on the clouds and he is going to inaugurate this kingdom. That's what they're looking for. But what seems so confusing about it is that the Son of God, the Son of Man, is crucified on a cross. 
He's crucified on a cross. And so they're left wondering, what is going on? And I think that's also what Daniel is telling us. God is telling us through Daniel in this passage. Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Just This, this may be confusing. He's, he's, he's thinking about these things, and in the midst of his dream, he approaches somebody who's standing there. It doesn't tell us who. It just says he approaches someone, and this is what happens. He approaches someone, and this person tells him the interpretation. So verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Look at this, key verse in this whole thing. This is talking about four kings who will rise out of the earth. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So it's reiterating here. Kingdoms are going to come and fall. Uh, they're going to be put to death. Their dominion's going to be taken away from them. The kingdom is going to be put in place. And, uh, but the saints, God's people of the Most High, are going to receive that kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Okay, okay. Let me just tell you. This is the great Christian hope. It's, it's telling us again, it's the great Christian hope that one day we will be with the Most High and we will possess the kingdom with him forever and ever. 19, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them uh, fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. Now stop for a second. So Daniel's going back in the story. He's looking at this great beast, and he's saying, man, I really want to know about that beast because it had these ten horns, and then this other horn came into to being, this little horn, so it has 11 horns now, but this little horn comes in, and it plucks up these other three horns, and now you've got this little horn that has eyes and a mouth, and it's speaking arrogantly, and what's going on with that? Verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So what are we talking about here? We believe we're talking about the Antichrist. We're talking about the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's talking about this person, this being that is going to come and make war. Now some people thought that it was this, this guy from history that really persecuted uh, the Jews. Uh, but it's very possible that we're talking about uh, somebody in the future. In fact, I believe that is what it's talking about. It's saying that he made war against the saints and he prevailed over them. 
until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And so what it just told us was this, is that, hey, pay attention to this, like there's this kingdom of Rome, and then it has these ten kings that follow, and then there's this one horn that is, that represents this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, but that one's going to be killed ultimately and ultimately, the saints are going to possess the kingdom. And so it says this in verse 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, the little horn, and he shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He's going to kill three kings. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, the only God is able to change the times and the law. He's going to try to take the place of God. And they shall be given into his hands. Who shall be given into his hands? The saints. For a time, times, and half a time. It might mean three and a half years. But what's it say in verse 26? But the court shall sit in judgment... And his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. But, they kept, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's look at this. How is it that God, in this broken and fallen world, goes to the sea and churns it up and brings out of it these four beasts? And out of these four beasts comes this little horn, and this little horn comes in, and he makes war against the saints, and he overtakes them. Let me tell you why this doesn't seem comf uh, comfortable. Maybe you already see it. God, are you ordaining that I would go through great difficulty? God, are you, have you ordained have you allowed the saints to be persecuted? God, are you, are you the one who is allowing this to take place? And I think what we can see from this picture language is that very clearly, somehow, God has ordained that it would take place. He's allowing it to take place. He's allowing his saints to be given into the hand of this, but the court is going to sit in judgment. God's court is going to sit in judgment. And so what does this mean? What's this mean to us? 
What should it say? First, God, the Ancient of Days, does whatever He wants, whenever He wants. And He is not subject to your definitions of what you believe that He should do or what He should not do. God is not subject to my rule and to my reign and to my definition of what humanity should be and do. God is subject to His own desires, to His own will. I don't know if you've looked at Romans 8, uh, 28. In fact, look at Romans 8, 26 and following. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself incedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is in what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. How does the Spirit intercede for the saints? What I, I want to pray, I want to talk to God, I want to speak to him, but how does that happen? It happens according to the will of God. It doesn't happen according to my will. God, I want this to stop. I want this to go away. I want the murdering in Syria to end. I want all everyone to get along. And how come it seems like you are not in control? Because he does according to his will. And even in our prayers, the Spirit intercedes and says, it'll be according to the will of God. And it says in verse 28 of Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What is the good that, it, that, it, that things are being worked toward? What is that good? For those who are called according to His purpose. Not my purpose, not my good, not my will, but God's will. So what do we see from that? God is sovereign over all things. He's the one who sits in judgment. Let's God tell Job, be quiet and I'll be the one who questions you, not the other way around. God will sit in judgment. He is sovereign. The world is not out of control. You may hate our current president. I mean, let's be honest, there's a lot of that in our country right now. Visceral hate towards either side. Uh, God has not left the building. God has not left his throne. He is seated on his throne. The kingdom has been inaugurated by the Son of Man, and it will accomplish its purpose. But the saints may be and will be persecuted. So you can expect this. You can expect it. Persecution of believers will be standard fare until Jesus returns. It says in Philippians chapter 1, 
verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should suffer, um, you should, uh, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I don't know what theology you come from. I don't know what you're dealing with. But if you came to God so that you would no longer suffer, you may have believed a false gospel. I'm not saying you have, but you may have believed a false gospel. So what does this mean? It means that as we go through life, we have incredible temptation. It means that the temptations that we experience are so real and so, and so tangible and they feel like they're so a part of us because we're a part of this world and yet what we, what we think is, is we'd say, if I don't give in to this temptation, then I would be suffering. If I don't give in to this temptation, then I would be suffering. And so you know what you can do? You can go find yourself a teacher that calls themselves a Christian, but they're not a Christian. Call themselves a Christian and say, you know what? You can do whatever you feel like doing because it feels the greatest to you. That's a part of you. That's your identity. That's where you're at. You can do it. And so they'll say things like, God wants you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be in a marriage where, 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 where there's fighting happening. He doesn't want you to live your entire life in, in misery. He doesn't want you to live in the midst of that. God wants you to be happy, so why don't you step outside of your marriage? Leave that person. Be happy. In fact, go marry somebody who wants to go to church with you since your spouse doesn't want to go to church with you. And then you can kind of justify it and say, you know what? Ha <laughs> ha. See, I, this is really for God. I'm going to divorce my wife or I'm going to divorce my husband so I can go to church with someone who is a Christian. And so uh, what we can make excuses and we can say, you know, I'm suffering because I'm not experiencing the love that I, that I want to experience. Now, what I'm not saying is that if you're in the middle of abuse, you're being abused in your marriage. I mean physically abused, um, some, some types of verbal abuse and things like that. I'm not saying that God has called you to, to stay in that marriage. I think you should step out of that marriage. I think you should come tell me, and I will come talk to your husband, me and a couple of other big guys, all right? There's nothing that makes me more angry. Ladies, come talk to me, please. Oh, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, are the, the punks who walk away from their marriage and somehow say that, that, was, that that's God. Well, you know what? God is sitting on his throne. You know what he's judging? He's judging me and you. He's judging. And, and he can sit in judgment over over what I'm doing and who I am. We believe that we're suffering, but what this says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it's like you've been called to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's what Daniel says, is that like the beast is going to come after the saints. And the beast might be your temptations. And the beast might be physical ailment or sickness or whatever. 
and the beast might be a bad marriage, and the beast might be whatever. It's going to come after you. The beast is going to continue to come after you. He's going to plague you, and I believe there will be a literal man of lawness that will come, and he will literally persecute the saints. But the way that we can apply this to our lives right here and right now is that he's coming after us right now where we're at. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. The Son of Man comes. He is on the same level as the Ancient of Days. He's God in the flesh. He is worthy of all glory and praise and honor and dominion. And yet, what does he do? He suffers. He suffers for you. He suffers for all of us. He goes and he suffers. And through his suffering, what happens? He makes a way so that you and I can make it through the judgment of the Ancient of Days. He makes, he makes a way so that the Ancient of Days looks at us and instead of seeing my sin, he sees the Son of Man. He sees the Adam, the, the Adam who really does act in righteousness. He sees Jesus on the cross. And what's more, he sees the blood of Christ. And why is that important? It's because the blood of Christ is the thing that covers our sins. It's the blood of Christ. And what makes it effective is the resurrection of Christ. And as he's resurrected, what takes place is what, what, what becomes possible is my resurrection. It's my ability to be with God because of everything that Jesus has done for me. It's my ability to be with the king who will reign forever and ever and ever and to sit in the throng of people, the thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 who will sit around the throne room and sing glory to God. Don't you see? The Christian hope is not just here and now. It is here and now. You can suffer through this because there is a kingdom that is coming that will wipe out the man of lawlessness, that will wipe out your sin. But it's a great future hope. A great future hope. Hold on. He's coming on the clouds. He will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. If you don't have that hope, you're not trusting in God. You're not trusting God. If you don't have that hope and you're just hoping that things would be better here and now, we need to deepen your true hope in the God that we serve by understanding really what are we hoping for here and now. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I, uh, I pray for a great understanding. 
I, I pray for a great understanding of what's, of what's taking place in, in these passages. And Lord, that you would bring about a new understanding of how awesome you are in light of world events and the events of our lives, the, the events of our day-to-day. Lord, give us a great hope in who you are and what you're going to do. Lord, may we rest in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.